Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you all again. Um, there are many more people in here than the last time I was here. So, as Brock said, I am Justin Wilson. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm a seminary student there. I've just finished up my first year and have a calling on my life to preach God's Word and to pastor His people. So I'm thankful to get to fill in for a Sunday as Brock has had a wild week uh, planning the Harvest of Hope and everything that went into the event last night. So I'm happy to be able to give him some rest this morning or this week, not having to prepare a sermon or to give a sermon. So I'm thankful to be with you all. If this is your first time here, we welcome you and we're glad you're here. Um, Please come back. This is not normal for me to be up here. Um, Brock does a great job every single Sunday and does far greater than I will do for you today. So please come back if this is your first time. Um, But yes, I'm just really glad to be here, happy to be able to bring uh, some of God's word to you all this morning. So how today is going to look is I will pray, I will read the text that we are going to work through, and then I will preach it. Jake and Michaela will come up, lead us in a song, and then there will be Vaden's baptism, and then we'll close with a song, and then we'll head out. So it'll be a little bit longer service than normal, and Lord willing, I will preach efficiently, and I won't be too long-winded, and and we can go enjoy the rest of our Sunday. But before I do that, let's come to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for today and thank you for your Lord's Day that you have set apart this day in particular of every week to come to church, to worship you, to praise your name, to pray to you, to hear your word expounded upon. So just pray that you are with us in this service. Pray that We would glorify you and honor you and praise your name. Pray that I would be just a mouthpiece for your word, for your truth to be proclaimed to the people. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and the cross of Jesus Christ and what has done for all of us. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you see on the screen, we are in Colossians 3 today. And if you are here Normally, you know that Brock preaches verse by verse, line by line through a book of scripture, and you just finished up the book of James, and you're probably wondering why I'm jumping into the middle of another book, and next week, Pastor Brock is starting on the uh, letters to the Thessalonians, and it probably wouldn't be great for me to start into a new book. It's helpful to have your own pastor do that, so I had the gift of a one-off sermon, so to speak, which seems like a great gift. I can pick anything of the whole Bible to preach on. Uh, And in reality, it was an extremely daunting task because I had anything in the whole Bible to preach on. And so in a lot of prayer and contemplation and conversation with Pastor Brock, trying to figure out what would be the best thing for the people of Woodlawn Chapel, what would be the best thing for you all in, in your context, in your lives, as I am in Indianapolis and not here often, I don't know what's going on in the life of Woodlawn Chapel, I don't know what's going on in the life of Charleston as much as I used to, and I'm thankful that the Lord gives wisdom when we ask of it, and he promises us in his word that he gives wisdom if we ask of it, and he provided with the idea of this text, the thought of how beautiful our union with Christ is, our union with our Savior is, and then in conversation with Pastor Brock, he said that would be very fitting as you guys have work through Galatians, and then you work through James, you understand what a life of faith is, you understand how we are to live out the life of faith through being doers of the word, not only hearers of the word. And in this passage in Colossians, we understand that because we are united to Christ through faith, we then live to Christ and put to death 
the old ways, the old man, the sinner in us, and we live to righteousness, and we live to the new things in Christ. So I will read this passage, and then we will start working through it. It will be on the screen, or Colossians 3, 1 through 14, um, in your pew Bible, if you have one. I don't know if this is going to turn. Um, either way, I'll read it, and it might show up on the screen. There we, oh, too far. There we go. All right, Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So in this text, we see that Paul describes our relationship with Christ, that we were raised with Christ, we died and our life was hidden with Christ, and then when Christ appears, we will also appear with him in glory. And it's helpful to understand, before we even get into what all that means, it's helpful to understand what this whole book is about, because it's dangerous to pull a verse or a passage out of Scripture, out of a book, without the context around it, to understand why is Paul saying this? Why is he writing to these people? Who is he even writing to? So we must understand that before we get into the text, because if we jump into the middle of the book, we don't understand even what Paul is talking about. So in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul writes that he's writing this letter to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So he's writing to Christians, to believers, to the saints, and to the faithful brothers and sisters in that church. And then he says again in verse 10 in chapter 1, he's writing these that you, the faithful brothers and saints, may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what this whole book of Colossians is about. It's an admonition, it's an encouragement to the Christians, to the believers in Colossae, to walk the life of faith, to live the life of faith. And so Paul continues on throughout this book, and then we get to chapter 3, where he describes the relationship between the people and Christ, and then tells them what they must do if they have this relationship with Christ. And so one key truth before we get through the passage, and one main point as well, this key truth is this union with Christ. None of the things of putting to death our members which are on earth, putting off the old things, putting on the new ways can happen without our union with Christ. 
is a foundational, fundamental Christian truth that we must understand that we don't just put our faith in Christ. We have a relationship with Christ. It is not just, and it goes beyond just a relationship. It goes to an actual union with our Savior. That when we died the death with Christ, we are united to him. So union with Christ is foundational to understand how to live as a Christian. It's not merely just putting our faith in our Savior, but it's being united to our Savior. And the main point what this whole text is getting at, and I try to often do this, one for myself and two to keep it simple for everyone listening, try to condense it down into one sentence, one argument. What is Paul getting at with this text? The main point is this. The union with Christ isn't just life or death. It's life and death. And what I mean by that is the union with Christ isn't just a decision to follow Christ and to be united to him to eternity or there would be eternal death if you aren't united to Christ. It's also life and death. That we are putting to death the old man inside of us and we are living to Christ as the new man. So union with Christ isn't just life or death. It's life and death. And so I'm going to break these up into four sections as we work through. And the first section is going to be Colossians 3, 1 through 4. I'm going to read that again, and then we'll work through it. Paul says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this is our union with Christ, that we not only have our faith in him, but we are raised with Christ. And this is a spiritual resurrection because Paul's writing to people who are alive on the earth. So we have not yet been raised to glory, spiritually raised with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in verse 3. And this is not hidden in secrecy, but it's hidden in security in God. That when we are united to Christ, he has us securely held in God. And when Christ appears in verse 4, we will again appear with Christ in glory. And this is talking about when Christ comes again, when he returns, then we will raise bodily and we will appear with him in glory because we're united to him. But he also says, because of all these things, we must seek those things which are above. We must set our mind on things above, not on things on the earth. But he doesn't really tell us what those things are. So thankfully, in one of Paul's other letters to the Philippians, he tells us what those things are. So I'll just read Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So these things that are pure, that are just, that are noble, that are lovely, that are of good report, that are virtuous, that are praiseworthy. These are the things we set our minds on. These are what we fix our gaze on, or the things above, the things of God. And this is the definition of our relationship, that because we are united, because we are raised, because we are hidden, and because we will again appear with Christ in glory, in response we set our mind on things above. Because of the relationship, then we respond in a way that is glorifying and honoring to our God. It is the grounds for how the Christian acts moving forward. That we live as we are united to Christ. We live for Christ. We set our mind on the things that are of Christ. 
That is how we move through the rest of this passage, knowing that we are united to Christ, knowing that we have our faith in him that determines the rest and it helps us have victory in the rest of what Paul calls us to. And then he gives the command starting in verse 5, and I'll read verses 5 through 8. He says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. This is a strong command that we are to put away the old man and we are to live as the new man. And the way we put away the old man is we put to death the members which are on earth. And that means the things of your life that still resemble the old self, not the new self that is in Christ. As we are a new creation in Christ, we must live as that and not live as the old self. So we must put to death our members which are on earth. Put to death the things that still resemble who the old man was. And this doesn't just mean avoiding sin, just skirting around it and trying to stay a little bit clear of it. It means put to death the sin. We cannot let sin just stay around and be close to it, but try to distance ourselves from it a little bit. We have to put it to death. It is a very serious command. And I think for any of us, if we think about it, when we try to just avoid sin instead of just getting it out of our lives, we typically end up falling back into it. Think of gossip for an example or talking poorly about others that you might realize that that's a problem and then you decide when your friends are talking poorly about someone else, you're not going to engage in that. But you're still around the conversation, you still hear it, and then you don't engage in it. And then you come back to another conversation, you, you stay away from the gossip again, but you're still around, you're still involved with the conversation. Then eventually, you hear it again, you're part of another conversation, you just cave in and you, you partake in the gossip as well, and you hurt someone behind their back by speaking poorly against them. And the reason why you ended up falling into it was because you were just kind of avoiding the sin rather than putting it to death. You weren't saying, I'm not going to come anywhere near gossip, I'm not going to say that gossip is wrong, you're just trying to avoid from falling into it. But we can take this to any other sin. We can take it to materialism. When you see ads pop up on your phone or on your laptop and you don't click it the first time, but you think about it a little bit, and then it comes back the second time and you see, because it's a pretty good deal, it's a good sale going on right now. You don't need it, but you want it really bad. And then, but you just look at the sale, but you don't buy it. And the next time you see the ad, you just end up buying it because you just can't help yourself but, but buy it. We can do this with every sin out there. Though. If we don't put it to death, if we don't say, I'm not going to gossip, I'm not going to be materialistic, I'm not going to be lustful, I'm not going to be hateful, if we don't kill the sin, if we don't put it to death and we just avoid it, we will fall back into it. So this is a very strong command to put to death the sin. We are not trying to just avoid sin and live a good life. You're trying to kill our sin and live to righteousness. And then Paul pulls no punches with the list of sins that he names. He names fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And what's interesting about all of these is that only one of the five listed is a physical act. And it's the first one that's named. Everything else is, is an internal sin in, in the mind or in the heart. But he starts with fornication and 
This word can be translated, almost is better translated as sexual immorality because the Greek word is porneia, which if you do the etymology, you can assume what English word comes from that. And it means all kinds of sexual immorality. It's not just fornication. It is also adultery. It is also homosexuality. It is also sexual acts before marriage or outside of marriage or lustful thoughts or the things that you look at on your computer or on your device. It is all-encompassing sexual sin. And Paul names that very first, that we must put to death this sin. We cannot avoid, we cannot dance around it. We must put this sin to death. He names sins very clearly. He goes to uncleanness, which could be a physical uncleanness or could be an internal uncleanness, which is just impurity. It's your impure thoughts. It's your impure actions. It's your impure heart posture towards others. It is uncleanness. We must put it to death. He names passion, which is lustful thoughts after other people or after things that you want or things that you crave or you desire. When your passion is too lustful and it drives you too much to where you think about the things that are not of God, but you think about the things that are of the earthly body. He names evil desire, anything that is not a desire for a godly thing, for a righteous thing, for a good thing, is an evil desire. He names covetousness. And he says, covetousness is idolatry. You might be thinking, I thought idolatry is creating something and worshiping it or knowing that something gets elevated too highly in your life, that then it becomes idolatry because you're worshiping it. Paul says that covetousness is idolatry because anytime you put worth or value that belongs to God into something else, it is idolatry. You are coveting something so much that you can't be content in your life because you desire it and you crave it and you want it. And the worth and the value that should be given to God is given to something else. It elevates that thing to the level of God. Whether that's a job or finances or a house or a car or a different relationship or a better spouse or better children or better parents. Whatever it may be, if you desire it so much so that it makes you content, discontent in this life, it is idolatry. It's putting value and worth into something that belongs to God and you put it into something else. And Paul says, because of these things, because of these sins that we are to put to death, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And so he's saying that the wrath of God is still coming on the sins of people who are not united to Christ. I think many of you are either familiar with or maybe even experienced fire and brimstone preaching at some point in your life. And there's a lot of wrong in fire and brimstone preaching. But what they get right is that the wrath of God still is real. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. There is wrath coming upon the sons of disobedience. And Paul is saying, these, writing to these Christians, you are the new man. You yourselves once walked and lived in the ways of the sons of disobedience. And the wrath of God was coming for you. But now you are the new man. You are united to Christ. And the wrath of God that was for you was then put on Christ on the cross. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And we are, when we are made new in Christ, when we are united to Christ, we are no longer a son of disobedience. We are a new man and a union and a Christ follower. We are united to Christ. We once walked in the ways that were deserving of wrath, but now we walk in the light and we walk in the life that God has given us. But that doesn't mean that the wrath of God is 
totally assuaged. It is still coming on people who remain disobedient, who remain unrepentant, who do not profess Christ. And the only reason Christians are able to escape that wrath is because Christ bore the wrath for us. I have a quote from the song in Christ Alone down near the bottom. It says, Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we will sing that song after the sermon because it's so true that even though the wrath of God was destined for us, it was satisfied for all Christians on the cross of Christ that he forgave us our sin. But we must be putting to death these sins or else the sins are killing us. This is the the theological idea of the mortification of sin. And there's a famous 17th century English man named John Owen. And he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And to be honest with you, the first time I ever heard that, I didn't think it was true. I thought it was a little bit extreme. It wasn't totally accurate. Like, I don't think I need to be killing sin. I think I just avoid sin and live to Christ and, and I'll be okay. But as I've learned and as I've already shared, when you just avoid sin and when you aren't killing sin, it often leads you to stumble back into the sin. That very sin is what the wrath of God is coming for. So if you are unrepentant and living in sin, that's what the wrath of God is coming for. That's what the sin is killing you rather than you are killing the sin. So it's a very serious statement. It's a very real statement, but it's a statement we should take to heart that if we are not killing our sin, it is mutilating our own flesh. But it wasn't really John Owen that said it first. Paul says it here, that we must put to death our sin. We must kill our sin, or else the wrath of God is coming for it. So we must be killing sin, or our sin will be killing us. And Paul gives another list in verse 8. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And put off, again, does not just mean avoid. It means get rid of the sin, cast it out of your life. And the only reason we even have the power to do so is because we are united to Christ. Because we are united to our Savior, we have the ability to kill sin and to put off the sin that once corrupted our body. And now that we have Christ in us, we have Christ with us, we can have a victory over that sin. But he goes on to name anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. I think in the first five sins that were listed previously in verse five, it might have feel like you escaped a little bit and you might be clean and don't need, you don't feel like you struggle with those. And I think in naming these ones, most likely we've encountered at least some that many of us or all of us struggle with that we are often short-tempered and angry. We can be wrathful towards others or desire wrath to be done towards others. We have, a, we have malice in our hearts towards others. We blaspheme God or we blaspheme others. We talk poorly and negatively about others. We have filthy language out of our mouth. When I was probably early in high school, I was in a small group and was trying to figure out does the Bible tell me that I can't cuss? And I don't really remember what the answer was to that discussion. I'm sure it was probably, no, you shouldn't cuss. Whatever the answer was, I felt like it was good enough to where I could still justify cussing and using dirty language every once in a while. I didn't want to cuss a lot as a high schooler, but 
I wanted to cast enough, if I was frustrated or competitive or whatever it may be, I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to be justified in, in my use of filthy language. And because I couldn't find a verse that said, do not cuss. And then as I was preparing the sermon, it's hard to avoid um, putting off filthy language out of your mouth without thinking cussing is involved in filthy language. And it's not, people could make an argument that you could use some cuss words in a form where it's not filthy, and you probably can make that argument. So it's not just all-encompassing about cussing. It's also about talking nasty about others, saying gross and provocative things. Talking with a filthy mouth isn't just cussing. It's in every aspect of life. It's in the words you use. It's the way you speak about others. We are to put off filthy language out of our mouth. We probably should not cuss or make a habit of cussing. We should not talk nasty and make a habit of using filthy language. And we are told to put that off, to put it away. It is of the old man, it is not of the new man in Christ. If we are united to Christ and we are in Christ and people know we are Christians, but then we sound just like those who aren't Christians, it leaves a question mark there. We are to put off filthy language out of our mouth. We are to live to Christ, live to righteousness, put off the ways of the old man. And continuing on in verses 9 through 11, Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, uncircumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the last command to not do before he goes to what we do do. He says, do not lie to one another. We are to live in honesty among our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we lie, we resemble the devil. As John, in John 8, 44 says, the devil is the father of lies. Lying to one another does not belong in the body of believers. Christians are honest. They live in honesty. They have integrity in their lives. They do not lie because the devil is the father of of lies and, and our Father God is the Father of light and truth and honesty. We do not, we are called to not lie to one another because we have put off the old man with the old deeds. It is a past tense thing. The old man is gone, and so the lies that resemble the old man should be gone with him. We have put on the new man. We are a new creation in Christ. We are newly found in Christ. And so we are to set our mind things above. The new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. The new man is renewed by God's word, the, the knowledge that he grows through God's wisdom and God's truth. That is the only way to be renewed in knowledge. If God is the ultimate source of truth, if he is the ultimate source of wisdom, the only way we can know that truth and that wisdom is to read the words that he has given to us. We are to be renewed in knowledge according to God, according to God's image according to his word. And then he says in verse 11, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And this is talking about God's kingdom. Those who are in Christ, there's no ethnic bounds on God's kingdom. There's no financial bounds on God's kingdom. There's no socioeconomic bounds on God's kingdom. Everyone is welcome in Christ's kingdom. What everyone has in common is not their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status. What everyone has in common is their union with Christ, their union with their Savior, is what gets us 
into God's kingdom. When he says barbarian, it's talking about people of a different language. When he says Scythian, it's talking about people who are unruly or a different socioeconomic, typically lower status in society in that age. It's everyone is welcome in God's kingdom because Christ is all in God's kingdom. Christ is all our hope. He's all our joy. He's all our righteousness. He is everything in the kingdom of God. And Christ is in us all in God's kingdom through our union with him. That is the only way we can enter into God's kingdom is to be unified to the Savior who got us there. Christ is all and in all in God's kingdom. And moving on to this final three verses, Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So now we have been called to put off the old man, put to death the ways of the old self, and we are called to put on the things of God. We are told to live as the new creation of Christ that we are. We are called the elect of God. And this is not a text for a sermon on election and get to the depths of what that means. I think Brock has preached somewhat recently on that word and that phrase. This is just God's people. As Israel was in the Old Testament was God's chosen nation, God still has a chosen people and is God's people on earth that he's talking to. As the saints, as the faithful brothers, as the elect of God, they are holy and beloved. They are holy and set apart to God. They are beloved by God as Christians. And so as those people, as saints, as faithful brothers and sisters, as the elect, as holy and beloved men and women, we are to put on tender mercies. We are to put on kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We are to bear with one another. We are to forgive one another. I think this is maybe harder than putting off the old ways. Putting to death the old ways is a little bit easier to, to try to, one, avoid, but two, just totally cast out. But then to put on the new things of Christ, the new ways of Christ, is often harder for us. It's easier for us to be angry or to be unclean or to have evil desires or to covet things, to be wrathful, to have filthy language in our mouth. It's typically harder for us to put on tender mercies. To, to be kind to others, to be humble, to be meek, to be lowly in spirit, to be long-suffering and patient with others and enduring with others, to bear with one another. These are the harder things to do as a Christian, but because we are united with Christ, we have the ability, we have the power to do so. We can bear with one another, we can forgive one another. And it says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. And the first couple times I read through this as I was preparing the text, I didn't realize the weight of what that is saying. The even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If you're a believer in this room, you know what Christ has forgiven for you. You know the weight that he bore on the cross. You know how great the forgiveness was that he has for his people. And now he's calling us to forgive in the way that he did. And if you're not a believer in this room or you don't quite understand the weight 
of the forgiveness of Christ, think if you could count all your sins you've ever committed up to this point in time. I'm sure it would be a lot. It would definitely be a lot for myself. And then if you could count all your sins and see through the corridor of time to the end of your life and count every sin until then and get, it, get one lump sum. And many of us know that when we sin, we have this guilt, we have this shame that weighs heavy on our hearts until we experience the forgiveness of Christ. So imagine the weight of every sin and all the guilt and the shame of every sin and then take that times every single person who's ever going to be in glory and be in eternity and then put that all onto one man and that is Christ on the cross forgiving all the sins of all his people for all time. And as the song in Christ alone says, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. So through Christ's death, all of our sins is put on him and all of his righteousness is given to us and it doesn't make any sense for it to be that way but it is the great exchange that God has given for us and it is the forgiveness that he has given to us that no matter our sins, even though Christ knew that we were going to sin, he bore the cross and he had joy set before him as he endured the cross. It is the great forgiveness that Christ has given to us, that he bore the weight of our sins so that we may have eternal life in him. So there's a great level of forgiveness that Christ has done for us and he calls us to forgive others as he has forgiven us. I think that is a really hard thing to do as a Christian. When people have wronged us, when we are frustrated, when we are upset and we forget Christ's forgiveness for us, we want to stay holding a grudge. We want to stay angry. We don't want to forgive someone who's wronged us severely. And there is great hurt and pain that others have caused each one of us in this life. But there is greater hurt and greater pain that we have caused Christ and he has still forgiven us. We are called to forgive as Christ forgave. And the beauty of forgiving as Christ forgave is that it's actually a message of the gospel to whoever we have forgiven. It is saying, because Christ forgave me, I can actually forgive you for this really bad thing that you have done to me. And I use this as an example not to say anything about myself, but to say about the forgiveness of Christ. There was a time last year when I was living with a few guys. One of them was a good buddy of mine, a good brother in Christ that I go to church with, and a couple other non-believers. And one of the non-believers that we lived with was unfortunately chained to alcohol and was drunk more than he was sober. It was really difficult to live with him. And at one point in time, I left for vacation and um, he went into my room and he went into my roommate's room, my friend's room, and messed up some stuff and stole some stuff and destroyed some things. And um, coming home to it, it was really frustrating. But my friend and I had talked about how we were going to handle it. And he, our friend who stolen our stuff and destroyed our stuff was just avoiding us. He was so ashamed of what he had done that he would walk into the house very quickly faking a phone call or listen to his music. He would stay in his room all the day long and for about three days we never saw him. So we had to text him, just ask for a conversation. When we finally got to talk with him, we told him we were frustrated and the trust had been broken but that we forgave him for what he had done because Christ had been able, or because we were able to forgive him because Christ had forgiven us for so much more than destroying a couple things and stealing a couple things. The forgiveness of Christ was far greater than the forgiveness that we could extend 
to our friend and we just shared with him the, the truth of the forgiveness that Christ offers us in the gospel. And he was blown away and he said that my own brother would not have forgiven me for these things that I have done to you. And he just did, could not comprehend the forgiveness that we had had for him. And we were able to share that our forgiveness is nothing compared to the forgiveness that Christ has for us. And we are called to forgive others because Christ first forgave us. So because of how great of a forgiveness that Christ has for all of us, we can have a great forgiveness for whoever has wronged us. So not only we can, we must forgive others the way Christ has forgiven us. So no matter how badly someone has wronged you, and there are really horrible, wretched wrongings in this life, and we must forgive because Christ first forgave us. We know the truth and we know the goodness of Christ's forgiveness. Therefore, we must share that with others. And Paul closes saying, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And this is not love as our world defines it today. The biblical definition of love is far different than what culture wants to say love is. In one of Paul's other letters, he writes that love issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's where love begins with the purity of heart, with a clean, a good conscience, and with true, authentic, sincere faith. And then he expounds upon what love is in 1 Corinthians 13. And many of you have probably heard this at a wedding or maybe at a church service or somewhere in life. You've heard Paul's description of what love is. And although it is good at a wedding, it is pertinent to everyone at all times. And Paul says this. He said, love suffers long, and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And it is this love, it is biblical love, that fuels our ability to live to Christ, to put on the things of Christ, to forgive others, to bear with others, to be long-suffering, to be humble, to be kind, to be meek, and then to put to death the things that are of the flesh. It is love, which is the bond of perfection that unites all of these together, that Paul calls us to put on love that unites all of this. And this is the call as the Christian. Everything in verses 5 through 14, all the putting to death, all the putting off of the things, all the putting on of the good things, it doesn't matter unless you are first united to Christ, unless you are unified with Christ. Our union with Christ fuels everything else we do as the Christian. Union with Christ isn't just life or death, it is life and death, and love fuels it all. We are to put off the things of the old man. We are to put to death the sins and the things of this earth, the members which are here on earth, we are to put on, as God's chosen people, as the holy and beloved people of God, the things that Christ represented for us, the things that Christ died for us to live to. We are to live to that as Christians in light of the forgiveness that Christ has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rich truth of our union with you, that it is through your work, through your forgiveness, 
through your gospel that we can be united and not just have a faith in and have a relationship to, but actually be united with our Savior. So we praise you for that and give you glory for that. And we pray that you give us strength now to put to death the things of this earth and to live to you, to put on things that are righteous, the things that are above, to set our minds on the things that are above. Lord, give us strength and give us faith and give us endurance in this life. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.